Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Gemma Sharp. Gemma is an Associate Professor of Research at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia and leads the Body Image and Eating Disorders Research Group. Gemma is also a Senior Clinical Psychologist at the Statewide Women's Health Service at Alfred Health, which has specialist eating disorder treatment facilities. Gemma joins me today to discuss social media and the impact this is having on our perceptions of self, body and BMI. Hello Gemma! Hello, it's so lovely to be with you. And I realized I should have condensed that biography. It was a bit of a mouthful, hey? Absolutely not. Oh, no, good. I think all of it needed saying. Um, oh, I just, I just been around a long time. That's the only thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's so cool. And I'm, I think what we're going to talk about today is um, it's something like when I was like reading your papers and stuff, I was like, this is so interesting and how it all links oh, Thank together. you. Um, Very kind of you to yeah, say. Super excited. Yeah. So tell me a bit about your research and and how you first got into researching body image and social media. Do you know, there's there's a short story and a long story. So I think I'll go for the medium one. I started out life as a biomedical researcher. So body image wasn't really on my radar. Like obviously I had my own sense of body image, just like all of us do. But um, I was doing some cancer research, particularly breast cancer research, and I was lucky enough to chat with some patients and they were talking to me about their body image concerns after having mastectomies and, and things like that. And it really put it on my radar of like, actually, there's a huge intersection of body image and and medical treatment. And that was where my sort of head was at the time. But then I just loved the body image stuff more and more. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to do this as a profession. So then I came back and retrained as a clinical psychologist, which is how I'm like a hundred years old now, but you know, here we are. Um, You do not look a hundred years old. Thank thank you. I've got a few filters going on. Um, (laughs) You know, just to, just to keep in keeping with the social media theme. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I was really lucky to go to a university where body image and eating disorders were very, were considered absolutely bread and butter, had the best in Australia, I think. In, um, and so I was able to do my training at Flinders University in Adelaide. And I actually started um, on, a, I suppose, a bit of a niche area, but uh, genital body image, in particular, why people get genital cosmetic okay. surgery. And that was my PhD Um, And so I I sort of took a deep dive on that particular area, but then um, after my PhD, it expanded more, but I absolutely love that area of genital body image and I'm fortunate enough to keep doing it to this day. That's so, so when you say like genital surgery, are you talking about like like the penis and vagina and things exactly so labiaplasty so reduction of the labia minora penile augmentation always get a lot of laughs with those talks um (laughs) i realized i was like looking at some genital pictures on the tram recently and then i was like oh people probably think i'm a complete deviant but i'm just reading my papers um (laughs) uh, but i i i mean i think um 
I think in body image research, it's very much a neglected area and I'm pushing for it to be considered part of our core body image interventions because these are very important organs just like the rest of us. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And that's really interesting. And I think it shows, you know, how little it's spoken about because that's not something I've ever really considered when we think about body dysmorphia you know often Mm. people will mention things like not having a large enough penis male body dysmorphia or a cisgender male I should say Mm. um it's tends to be um not enough hair on their heads skin issues or penis size they tend to be the um, main areas of concern for male body dysmorphia whereas female body dysmorphia tends to be a bit more diffuse um could be lots of different areas yeah, I know that's really interesting because I think when I, I think maybe because of my bias with eating disorders, but when I think about body dysmorphia, I just all of, I just think about like, you know, weight and shape being distorted, but not. Like my first PhD presentation back in the day, like they just, I think they had to hold on to their chairs. They were not ready for me to use the word vagina quite so much. And then after that, I felt like we'd opened the floodgates and, and like everyone sort of made comment of it later going, well, I can say vagina now too. So I, I felt like I, you know, helped, helped them become a bit more comfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's amazing. I think that's kind of the ethos that we have on this podcast as well as the more that we talk about issues that maybe people, you know, don't feel comfortable or there might be stigma around. It helps other people to talk about that too. So how did you go sort of from that area of research and body image to then thinking more about like eating disorders and disordered eating yeah so i i did um what's called the clinical phd in australia where you do both research training and your clinical psychology training simultaneously and i was lucky enough to get picked for the eating disorder placement and i tell you i feel so grateful that i was um i don't know what the criteria was but they said you'll do and i was like yay <laughs> and um i got to work in a university clinic and also a day program and i just loved it and i particularly liked how they were so misunderstood and, and really needed a lot more advocacy. I suppose I'm always a bit pro like areas that haven't been um, as researched as you're probably telling already. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, like you know, people are thinking that these are just superficial people or diets gone wrong or cries for attention. And I was seeing the real people and I was going, it's none of those things. What a joke. People are not understanding these issues. And I had a wonderful mentor who um, was sort of encouraging more of us to enter the field saying, we need more people. We need to build this workforce. And so uh, that was my sort of clinical introduction. And then once I finished my PhD, I um, was lucky enough to get a fellowship from the Australian government. And they were basically like, here's five years of funding, go do good things. And I was like, cool. And (laughs) so I, I sort of had that genital body image basis, but I knew that I wanted to expand it, particularly in a digital mental health capacity. So this was about five years ago. So digital mental health was not, not what it is now. That is for sure. Um, and so we were just doing these like basic mobile apps, which are kind of laughable now, but um, we, we thought they were really pioneering at the time. So I think it was just um, a mixture of circumstance and being given great opportunities by by mentors that got me into this field. 
Yeah, I think that's... It often does happen that way, doesn't it? In that sort of you... It might not be that you have this, like, burning passion for a particular subject, but, like, you just sort of end up there and actually realise this is my burning passion. I found myself here. I feel really grateful that I, yeah, that I've had the chance to find my passion because I know a lot of people go through life trying to find it and I just got lucky. Yeah. And I mean, it sounds like you are so passionate and I think it sounds as well like you really, you have that passion for speaking about things that maybe aren't, you know, commonly spoken about. Yeah, I go for the taboo things, that's for sure. I like doing the tricky research. We'll, we'll take yeah, her, yeah, exactly. She says vagina, she'll be fine. <laughs> Pretty sure that was it. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, not cutting that bit out. Um, oh, we'll oh great. Like, yeah, st- sorry that I've ruined your rating, <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's let's move forward. <laughs> so, if we're thinking about um, your research that you've done yes. with eating disorders and disordered eating. Yes. How, what sort of role does social media, you know, what have you seen in your research and, and particularly with body image as well? What role does that have to play in yeah. body image? Oh gosh. Like when I think back of like the, the really basic social media studies we were doing in 2013, like when I first started studying it, it was like, do you use the internet? It was like the questions we were asking. So thank goodness we've evolved hugely in that time. Like, like asking about particular platforms like we've certainly seen evolution of platforms haven't we in that time with a sort of majority facebook usage then instagram tiktok and i'm sure there'll be more to come and also i suppose shifting to very much image focused platforms which instagram and tiktok particularly are and i think that's um so i i've been fortunate to do research both in a a sort of cosmetic surgery setting but also in body image eating disorders and what we do find is that those image-based activities particularly taking selfies posting them waiting for comments looking at other people's selfies and their lives and those kinds of comparisons can be quite detrimental to people's sense of body image and certainly in more recent years we've seen a whole wave of wellness type content which doesn't really promote wellness in my experience um suggesting how people should eat and how people should exercise based on people who don't necessarily have the qualifications always to be providing this advice and unfortunately promoting disordered eating habits and and things like that. So I think there is a lot of unfortunately not great content out there um, that that is quite influential. Yeah, I think that point that you make about people with little qualifications um, (laughs) posting on social media, I think often it's if somebody looks a certain way um sure they're they're selling a package aren't they selling a lifestyle and it's like oh that that green juice looks great (laughs) or you know that person looks like they're living their best life yeah and actually a lot of the time it's more the genetics of that person and oh sure potentially what works for them and then and then the algorithm's always perpetuating that body type as well i mean i think that's been shown on tiktok the, the kind of the the unfortunately slimmer white woman really does get a lot of airtime compared to more diverse presentations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I saw something the other day that was like um, talking about a PT and it was like your body is your 
it was an advertisement but it was you know basically they were saying like the way that you look um will mean that you'll get more clients and stuff and, and the guy himself was <sighs> absolutely this is complete nonsense because like I don't have the perfect body um but I have all of these qualifications and you're telling me that the way that I look is going to get me more clients as opposed to yeah. the experience that I have the qualifications that I have but it's you have so many people nowadays and I think particularly you know I don't want to kind of shit on the eating disorder community <laughs> at all but a lot of people are becoming recovery coaches because they've had an eating disorder, but they've got no qualifications behind them. It's, I mean, it's such a good point that you mentioned there, Hannah, and I think there is absolutely a place for that peer workforce and something we're doing a bit more in Australia, and I think the states are doing a really good job of it, mm. is just if you want to if you want to be that recovery coach by all means come and do training with us work with an eating disorder organization or clinic and then you have the clinical team support as well as your lived experience to advise people who who want to recover i i think without the clinical backing it's just yeah i i would not recommend it yeah, I think we do a lot of that in the UK as well, actually. It's incredible because having somebody who has that lived experience, you know, can empathise with you and maybe yes. you know, not know exactly what you're going through, but but have an understanding. And you can also learn from them and what they did for their recovery is amazing. Oh, without a doubt. That clinical aspect. To yeah, really... you know, just in case it's going a bit wrong. <laughs> like, I would not want the peer worker to be felt like they've been dropped in it. Like, because people, yeah. as as you and I both know, and I'm sure the audience does too, um, people with eating disorders, their condition can change very rapidly and quite unexplainably. And it's like I I have always loved working in the multidisciplinary teams because I know I'm like okay, I can ask the GP, I can ask the psychologist. I can ask the dietitian. Oh, you know what? What do you think's going on? What do you think should be our plan? It's it's a great way of working together. Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got so many different experiences that you can bring together to really exactly wrap around care for somebody rather than a biased perspective from you know, <laughs> even if you just had one like you know trained professional working with someone on sometimes they have priorities oh tell me about it I I honestly if I feel like I'm the only one doing the work I start to worry I'm like um hello GP can we have a chat um you just yeah, yeah it, but I suppose because eating disorders are so complex affect so many systems you just yeah it's it's not ideal to be the only person supporting for your sake and theirs yeah yeah absolutely and and just to go back to sort of the social media kind of, of course thing. so you mentioned there how um you know social media can impact people's exercise habits and eating habits and i, I wondered if Definitely. you could expand a little bit more on that and maybe the damage that that can have oh gosh I mean, yeah, this could be a whole other podcast couldn't it um <laughs> I, I suppose what i something that comes to mind recently is just the the what i eat in a day hashtag i'm just oh geez <laughs> i i feel like it can for for maybe impressionable people who are struggling it can seem like a i must do this i must prescribe to this rather than 
other hashtags that we follow in a more cavalier way, um, this just seems like it's um, almost medical guidance on TikTok. And um, certainly when you get dietitians weighing in and people like that, they'll, they'll often say that sort of the caloric deficit, um, you know, this is not a, a well-rounded diet. Um, it, yes, it, it, it often ends up being not brilliant advice, sadly. But I suppose, like mentioning dietitians, some research I've been doing a bit more recently is just going, well, how do we get more health professionals on social media platforms? And I think what's, what seemed to be coming out was that health professionals were like, that's not our business. We're like, we, we do the medical work, we do the allied health work. Social media is not where we want to be. And I'm like, but don't you want to be that evidence-based voice on social media? Don't you want to be influencing your patients and beyond um, to to have to follow evidence-based treatment? So I think that's that's sort of another avenue I would really like to push more of that we we have more of a presence on these platforms to hopefully drown out some of the the less helpful voices. Yeah, it's. It's such a difficult one, isn't it? And mm. we, I was talking about this on a podcast that I recorded a couple of weeks ago because I think the main issue that we would face there is that a lot of the people that are on social media um, maybe are younger or the people that are going to take dietary advice or exercise advice from mm. social media are quite influential, like you say, and maybe don't have the knowledge behind themselves. So if someone lays mm. out an exercise routine, you know, clear cut this is what you need to do or yeah this is what you need to eat in a day it's very easy to follow health professionals coming on it's it's not a one-size-fits-all it's not yeah. a simple brush stroke of this is what you need to do mm. and so one I think you know the maybe more influential people wouldn't want to necessarily listen to a medical professional because they maybe don't have the aesthetic that they're mm. desiring whereas the social media <laughs> influencer looks the way that they want to sure but it's also not laid out easily for them to just as a really simple guide to follow I agree and it shows that we need to provide um, information which is uh, pardon the pun very ingestible and I like I you know I commend you for this podcast and inviting us on to give us a chance to to give guidance in a highly accessible and ingestible way. And I think that universities are doing a lot more of this science communication uh, work to help us become a bit more influential. But as you said, that if there's that shiny person who has the best life, that they may be, their advice may be taken over ours and that's something we'll have to sit with. And maybe it's thinking about how, rather than sort of it being an us versus them thing, mm. so think about how to collaborate together and Agreed. You know, how to learn from them of how are you so influential you know how are you getting mm. so many people behind you and wanting to learn from you and how can you help us um, yeah I feel like that could be a great collaboration agreed and I think that is happening in some um in some places as well like I'm just thinking of our Australian of the year who um she became her name's Tara Brumford she became famous because she kind of swapped that before and after paradigm so in her 
uh, before picture, she she'd just been in like a bodybuilding contest, and in the after picture, she was like, "No, nope, this is my natural body, and this is what I'm running with." And that became quite a social media sensation to flip that before and after. And I know she's working with uh, researchers to to help promote her message. So I think it absolutely can be done. And another thing I've thought of all the social media platforms because I'm sure they're listening is that they, I wonder if they could have like, they better, (laughs) they they could have like a super influencer or an influencers reward type category for people who promote that more evidence-based approach. Because I I do think they like, because, you know, this is how influencers are, are making their salaries and stuff. So the platforms can be a little bit more prescriptive in, as to how they reward influencers promoting the good word. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important, isn't it? I think some, like, not hot on the um, kind of news about this, but isn't it some platforms now are saying that you have to, if you edit a picture, then you have to kind of disclose that information? That's, that's, I, that is correct. And I know there were certainly big pushes for that a couple of years back. I think Norway were the first and good on them. I think just the only thing is, and this is research coming out of my old university, is that it's it's not necessarily the disclaimer that's helpful. Like people will go, oh, I know it's edited, but I still want to look like that. Like I think while it is, it is a good thing, um, it's more just not having the edited pictures or yeah, fl- encouraging influencers to post their unedited photos and be rewarded for that. Yeah, and I think that's so true. Um, I think... It is, you know, even if you see a, you know, this has been edited, it still, Ex- it still puts that image into your mind. Of, exactly. You know, and imagery is, is like. so powerful compared to words. I mean, I wish it was words. I mean, like I'm in the business of words, but um, yeah, images are just super powerful on these platforms. As you said, they're selling an aesthetic and it's like, I don't really care if that aesthetic was edited to get there. I want that aesthetic. I guess from your research, um, if we're talking about like imagery and editing, mm-hmm. yes. what have you found the impact to be on sort of like our perception of our own bodies um, based on editing of images and social media? It's so interesting, isn't it? Like this, this used to be like just the remit of the the Hollywood celebrities. Only they could edit their photos, and now we all have pretty much all of us have a device where we can do it too. So it's been a huge technological shift in a short time, and I um I I feel like this is a bit of a dated term now, but I did some research on Snapchat dysmorphia back in 2018. I think it was wow. because. It was, it was actually only Snapchat had those filters. So that's why they were calling it Snapchat dysmorphia. Now it could be any platform dysmorphia. Yeah. And what we were finding, um, so when we were doing the research with the cosmetic surgeons, they were saying that people used to bring in photos of Kim Kardashian and, and folks like that. And now they're bringing in their filtered selfie saying, make me look like this. So exactly. Um, wow. so, we saw that um, that technology being used to show people something aspirational, I suppose, that they, they could potentially look like that. And a, if, if they were an ethical surgeon, and I believe that the vast majority are, they would say that's just not possible. That's, that's a photo editing technology. That is not real life. That's not what a surgeon is capable of. But then there would be others who would go, oh, yeah, I'll give it a go. Um, and potentially people might not have been very satisfied with the outcomes. 
sorry to be stunned but that has shocked me like, <laughs> I get I, I can get like you know that body maybe the body types have changed that mm. people go in with and I think I was yes I can't remember who it was I was watching a video I think it was just like a video on um, Instagram the other day of a, a cosmetic surgeon and he was saying the same you know it used to be sort of like Kim Kardashian yeah like that, and then now it's I can't remember her name because I'm, I'm really not out in touch with things but it was a model um who themselves has had so much cosmetic surgery and he was like the so they're the, the they're the after the, photo anyway yeah exactly so it's yeah. kind of yeah the same thing and I mean yeah taking an edited picture wow that's shocked me yeah and I I think another I, I hope to shock you again I'll try um <laughs> so uh, obviously nose jobs or rhinoplasties are quite common procedures and what we found was so in the past the most common rhinoplasty was to get rid of any bumps on the nose so that kind of the side profile if I've got a bump I don't want the bump but what happened with um, photo filtering and, and more selfie taking was that the the bump rhinoplasty went out of fashion and it was all about the slimming of the nose. So how you looked in a profile front on, that became the most common rhinoplasty. So just the camera angle shifting the trend of surgery. Yeah, wow. And that just shows what an impact actually like, you know, taking selfies and it's almost sad in a way that we maybe take more selfies now than have a pictures of take people taking of us. I don't know. I that just... suggests to me that like the insecurities that we have, we we only take kind of selfies so that we're in control of taking the photo rather than kind of having those photos taken of us. Those more candid ones with our friends and actually doing things. Yeah, I, I totally yeah. get it. And I, I suppose some research, again, a couple of years back with this stuff was just how long people would take to, to get that selfie, how many shots, like literally hundreds or thousands, dedicating a whole day to getting that shot. Um, and uh, admittedly they sometimes enjoyed it but sometimes it was very stressful for them and I did wonder if it was really worth all that time sometimes yeah I have a really distinct memory of being in Barcelona with my mum and we went up to this um it was like at the top of Barcelona and we went up to watch the sunset and it was oh, lovely stunning. and yeah me and my mum took a beer up and sat there and watched the sunset <laughs> It was an absolutely gorgeous moment and, you know, we took the odd photo, but we were really, like, embracing the scene. Yeah. And there was a girl there with her partner and, honestly, the whole time we were there, they were taking... She was, you know, saying to him, take another, take another. And then Isn't that why photo. anyone has a partner, to be the photographer? Like, okay. Apparently. And I just... <laughs> after we left, I said to my mum, I was like, that's so sad because they... Mm they didn't even get to appreciate you know being in the moment together you know wherever yeah you are, who cares what the viewers being together but they didn't even you know they didn't appreciate the scenery or anything because she was so focused on getting that picture that perfect or, shot. you know I assume a social media mm. account and it just it really made me sad to think yeah that's kind of the way that we're going now this yeah I suppose that kind of life driven by social media content is some people will say that's a life well lived and others will say maybe not. Like it, it depends what you value in life, I think. Like for me personally, 
Probably not, although I am kind of known as the academic at Monash who <laughs> takes a lot of photos for Twitter, but it's always to, I think, mark an occasion of the team doing something. So I, I tend yeah. to like to mark occasions. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm a scrapbooker. So whatever oh, I'm lovely. Doing, I want to have a picture. Yeah. I a picture, my phone comes out for three seconds. I take a picture and then I put yeah. it away. I'm not like analyzing to see. Um <laughs> And that's just it. Like the stress that comes with that. I mean, that's what the research tells us. Like when you give people the opportunity to edit a selfie, they actually feel more stressed than if you don't give them the opportunity. So it's, it's, as you said, just take take the shot and and move on and enjoy the the moment as much as you can. Yeah. Do you think that's part, like, because if you edit a photo, it should be like the most perfect possible. So then if, exactly. if it's not well received when it's edited, it's like, well, what the hell would have the, you know, what the hell oh. is my natural, what are people perceive Absolutely. as natural if they're not liking the edited one? And, and all that effort you went to and it's just, mm-hmm. it would, it would feel very disheartening. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that you did some research on sort of BMI and um, yes. you know, perception of self and how how does social media and editing of pictures impact sort of the perception we have? <laughs> I mean, the, yes, there seems to be quite a, a narrow BMI range um, in certainly that more influential section of social media. I do commend advertisers, though, who are seemingly going out of their way more uh, more nowadays to show diverse body types. But certainly if you if you show a narrow range, people's ideal fits within that range of BMIs. And that's I hate to say numbers. I, I don't have to say them, but um, a narrow range of BMIs. But in in our research and, and I'm not saying that it's you know replicated the natural world, but hopefully one day we can. Um, when we showed a more diverse range of BMIs and, and body types, we were able to shift that ideal. Maybe not um, uh, hugely, but we were certainly able to get away from that narrow range when we showed a more diverse range of bodies. And that's what I hope advertisers are, are going more towards as well. People are going, oh, actually, that person looks a bit like me. That outfit could look good on me. Um so I think absolutely with greater exposure to more diverse body types, we can certainly be more accepting and embracing. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. One of my friends, um, she did a little, she's so into like psychology and stuff and she did a Fabulous. study with, you know, N of one. Um, but I think <laughs> it, it was a really good idea um, in that she was, um, her social media was very much put together of, you know, women in large uh, in smaller bodies Mm. and she found that when she then looked in the mirror she was really quite dissatisfied Mm. um with the way that she looked and so she was like okay I'm gonna I'm gonna you know change this up and I'm gonna follow people that um are in a larger body than Mm. me um removed all the people that were in a smaller yeah yeah and then she noticed that when she was looking in the mirror she was not dissatisfied with her body but she had more in like she wanted to have like a a larger body she wanted to have maybe more curves than she had and again you know there's still that comparison and still that drive for maybe a body type that you don't have Mm. but I think it just shows you that when you're sort of you know bombarded with these images and the influences around you it really does dictate what you sort of aspire of course 
And yeah. so if we have that more diverse range, so maybe small bodies, medium sized bodies, larger sized bodies, it just makes because when you step out into the world, you know, if you walk down the street, like I remember going on holiday once and I was this sounds so naive, but I was so shocked that not everybody was like very, very in a very, very small body mm. around in their um bikini. And I was like, Wow, you know, I that agree. It shows you what my social media accounts are displaying yeah um because I didn't expect people to be so diverse in the way that they look I I agree like particularly the beach or public swimming pools or anywhere people are you know in their swimwear is a great place to go and I I love it when people are just like enjoying their time in the pool whatever body size like I grew up swimming and I still do it and I I actually thank swimming for um, helping promote a positive body image in me that I was always uh, witnessing different body types in in my swim sessions yeah absolutely and that's brilliant because I know a lot of people sometimes have negative experiences um with the pressures of looking a certain way so it's great that you were able to sort of have that diversity and sort of get a positive impact from that thank you and so yeah one thing I wanted to ask and I don't know whether you know the research has suggested this or or whether you've done research on it but have you kind of done anything to look at the impact maybe social media has on people's idea around body image and like their perception of the self and BMI to be like, okay, like what do you think maybe this person's BMI is based on your experience of social media? Yeah, it's, um, I, I, I know a little bit of research on that thanks to my former PhD student, Ellie, shout out to Ellie. So we found that people were actually really bad at predicting BMI by looking at figures. They they couldn't predict their own if they didn't know, and they couldn't predict anyone else's. We're really bad at it. I I just think yeah we're terrible at terrible at guessing guessing um, dimensions of people. And obviously social media is feeding us one type of dimension usually. And we perceive that to be the ideal, even though um, certainly what we were finding was that people would sometimes say a a, a sort of an underweight or a low body weight was the ideal, even though Ellie and I knew that that person is likely to be rather unwell. Interesting. And I think I read some research um, a while back and it was looking at... um, it was like an imagery based study with um, individuals who had bulimia and mm. anorexia and the the individuals with bulimia and anorexia very much um, had a preference towards the smaller body sized images sure. and would almost try and avoid the larger bodies um, yes. and they were also looking at they also had like food based uh, images in there as well and yeah. you know, they would try and avoid the food based images yeah um and you know focus towards the um non-food images which i also find quite interesting because i know that um you know anecdotally and from other people sometimes when people are in the depths of um and i'm talking about anorexia here their Mm -hmm. social media can be consumed not only with body types of maybe smaller bodies but also food-based images in order to get that reward of food without actually consuming the food exactly like in back in the day it was collecting cookbooks for example or cutting pictures out of magazines of recipes Uh, but now as you said there's quite a lot of food porn on social media you can find any any dessert or any course that you like on social media and there'll be someone who's taken a photo of it 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that in itself, I think, is is damaging. And if you've got a mm. social media feed of just small bodies, but then also food, it's almost, you know, your brain is like, well, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Because <laughs> you're, you're giving me all of these images of smaller bodies, and therefore you want me to mm. kind of aspire to that. But then you're giving mm. me all these images of food, which are really making me you know, want that food. And mm. it, it's like that mixed message of, you know, where are we supposed to go? And I think it just makes it so confusing and such an unpleasant mm. kind of place to be. But oh, so, absolutely. Like, it so draws you in to keep going back for more. Indeed. And it, we know that anorexia and uh, OCD have a, a lot of overlap, both genetically and at a psychological level. So that obsession with uh, looking at food pictures, even though another part of you is like, I don't really don't want to do this. I feel so compelled to do it. And just as you're saying, that absolute discomfort, like, you know, you, you speak to anyone who is experiencing anorexia, it is the most uncomfortable disorder ever on multiple perspectives because you feel torn in a lot of different directions absolutely yeah yeah it's i think you know trying to do so many different things in terms of mm. um i always think about it you know from my personal experience of having lots of different volcanoes um and almost trying to put out all the volcanoes at once but you can't mm. because the volcanoes are actually fighting Keep erupting. against each other yeah and you've got one over there one over there and it's impossible yeah. to keep up with all of them but I'm interested you kind of just mentioned sort of OCD and anorexia mm, have yes. you noticed from your research if there's been any particular personality traits not just with eating disorders just kind of I guess society sure. in general, that means that they're more susceptible to social media and the sort of things that are the content that's put on there you know, I need to do more of this research, but I'm happy to talk, Hannah, about what I do know and encourage others to do this fantastic research that you're suggesting. And if anyone out there has done it, please tell me and I'll I'll read it. Um, so, and a shout out to my PhD student, Tanya, for, for, uh, for this research. So I think with eating disorders being so diverse, you can expect a range of personality traits to be associated with certain behaviours, like, for example, binge eating versus restriction. There's likely to be sort of different temperaments involved. But I suppose, um, and I'm surmising here, but there's a lot of um, impulsivity involved in some eating disorders, and I, I can imagine that that would be quite um, influential and in how people use social media, like just that, mm. that impulsiveness, keeping going, not being able to stop, not being able to moderate your consumption. That, that is a really strong, um, personality trait in quite a lot of eating disorder presentations. Um, there's also, uh, some, I suppose, introversion as well. And I can imagine that potentially, you know, being with your phone, being quiet with your phone is much more preferable to being out with friends. And again, that might perpetuate some uh, social media usage and, and wanting to connect via online means versus um, IRL. That um, kind of point that you make about mm. being online versus being in real mm. life, I think that's such a poignant thing. And I think often it's such a sort of loop um, mm. a destructive loop because you 
maybe have social anxiety um, because based around going out for food or what yes. people are going to comment on your body, things like that, or just generally going out and being mm. with people. And so you don't go out and therefore, like you say, you maybe go on your phone and you're attached to your phone mm. more. Then you see other people out and you get upset because you're not with them or maybe yes. you're jealous because they're doing yes. things that you want to be doing. And so then it's almost a um destructive cycle of then you feel worse about yourself so then you're drawn back to social media to try and make yourself feel better because absolutely hope of feeling better but then you see other people doing other stuff and and then you feel bad about Mm. yourself and then maybe within that you then go and engage in eating disorder behaviors because you feel bad about yourself because you feel lonely and it perpetuates that cycle and the more that you then don't go out to see people the more you feel excluded people maybe stop asking you to come out Mm. and then it's just you and your phone as your best friend I think you've just written the introduction of the study there Hannah I've (laughs) you've just identified the theoretical model we need that's, and, and just as you were talking there, you jogged my memory. So I do appreciate your explanation too. And I, you're absolutely right. There's there's obviously the, the sort of people who are um, have, a, I suppose, a predilection to a more negative mood or a negative bias that can feed into social media usage. But also, as you were saying before, excitement seeking was coming up with eating disorders as well, which I think can very much tap into social media usage of like, what am I gonna, what am I gonna get on my phone today? Like, I, I think that and the impulsivity can can work together, and of course, could are related to behaviors like sort of muscle building driven exercise those kinds of things sure well I mean it makes sense because an eating disorder makes your world so small and Mm. so rigid that you know you do everyone needs those bursts of excitement and if the only thing that you're getting that from is the food that you allow yourself to eat or you know going on social media Mm. to get that stimulation that totally makes sense that you know it exactly your you know it's it's I would absolutely say it, it's an addiction and it becomes mm. the place that you get that dopamine release and and feel that excitement from it so naturally you're drawn back um and that you know because it's not real because it's a highlight reel of what's going on in everyone's mm. lives it is actually so much more interesting and exciting than just walking down the street you know it's, it not, it's a lot nicer to connect to yourself and you know appreciate the flowers and listen to the mm. birds sing but I think that's the whole thing that maybe is the conclusion of this podcast is you know whether it's somebody's body image or the food that they're mm. eating because it's that highlight reel it's like a short sharp spike of excitement as opposed to yes. life that maybe is a longer yeah more moderate kind of peaks yeah 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 it, it's giving you that boom here's some excitement boom here's it which just keeps drawing <laughs> that's, i mean that's that's why people go gambling as you said and other things yeah. like that that um and you know that's the way our brains are hardwired over millions of years of evolution that we we seek out these kinds of rewards yeah absolutely yeah no i think it's really interesting and i i could talk to you for hours and i think there's so much to kind of explore in terms of the role that eating disorders are having, um, sorry, the role that social media is having and definitely something we need to be bringing Mm. more into a clinical setting. Um, I think so, that practitioners are well-versed on 
sort of how people use this content and how it might be impacting their treatment, potentially they're listening to another voice in addition to yours and how you might manage that. And also, I mean, from my own research, using social media for good, I, I just think there are so many opportunities really that we, we could be harnessing more. Sure, yeah. Well, I guess to finish then, um, I would like to ask you, one, what your tips would be for somebody to make their social media platform a better place, but then two, also how do you think that we can harness it as professionals to make it a better place for the patients that we're working with? I love these questions. (laughs) I'll I'll make my answers brief, though, even though I think these are paper-worthy questions. So I think, and you were mentioning some of these before, Hannah, I think it's about um, curating your feed or owning your feed. So that means looking at, you know, what, what inspires me, what brings me joy, what do I enjoy looking at? Okay, let's follow more of that then what makes me feel a bit rubbish about myself? Okay, let's unfollow some of that because that is clearly providing those negative feedback loops. I think it's also about setting an intention when you use social media. We found that through our research when, when people actually go online with a bit of a purpose, it's a more enjoyable experience usually than just that mindless scrolling. So it's calling like mindful usage versus mindless scrolling. I know we all engage in the mindless scrolling sometimes, you know, that's okay. But uh, if we can at least try setting an intention sometimes, I think that's really, really helpful. So follow people who inspire us shut off the people who who don't inspire us and have a a mindful intention when we go on social media. And your second question, Hannah, was uh, about how do health professionals have more of a a role on social media? Yeah, I think how do we kind of incorporate that in a clinical Mm. setting? How do clinicians ensure that that's, you you know, being used as a benefit towards somebody's recovery? Yeah, and I think I've been lucky enough to to lead some initiatives, digital mental health initiatives, uh, particularly using conversational AI. And I bet your users have heard of ChatGPT, um, which <laughs> I feel like we've this has just exploded in the last few months. Uh, yeah, clearly, it's what just, I it's suddenly come up. I know. Like... I've been in this chatbot space since 2018, so just to see this huge increase in technology is very exciting. And believe me, everyone will still have their jobs because ChatGPT learns from us. So we need to be feeding ChatGPT all the evidence base. But um, and certainly we're incorporating ChatGPT into our conversational AI work now. But certainly I um I will set uh, my own clients or patients skills to work on between sessions between appointments and conversational AI can really fill in for me between sessions or it can be really good preventative tools. So obviously there's not enough eating disorder workforce in Australia and beyond. So we should be using, I think, conversational AI to help us try and fill some of those gaps in service prevention. And obviously if we're designing it, then we know it's the correct advice versus uh, sort of a rogue chat bot that, um, that has learnt maybe some things it shouldn't have. So I've, you know, I dedicate a huge amount of my research time to that kind of work. And I think there are also some really wonderful mental health apps that I know your listeners would be using already um, that would help supplement what they're already doing with a therapist or just using them on their own in their recovery. 
I genuinely think we need to do another podcast on that. And (laughs) I'm sad that it's taken us this long to get to. Oh, no, no, I, you know, I could speak for years, Hannah, and I wouldn't force that on you or your listeners. But if if they want me back, I'll I'll make another time. (laughs) Are you saying that you use like the chat GTP to... Um, sort of support your client, your patients between sessions so to have conversations <laughs> well, with them if they're... We, we use some chat GPT components, more kind of like the small talk kind of stuff. We wouldn't, okay. we wouldn't get chat GPT to go, oh, here's CBTE. <laughs> we, yeah, we no. would not do that. <laughs> No, no, no. no, and I don't think anyone should ever do that. But um, certainly, because of the the advances they've made, they can make the conversation sound a lot more natural. So, in our earliest conversational AI work, it was not very natural, and we're a bit embarrassed by it now. But hey, you got to start somewhere. Um, so it just it does that kind of between content stuff quite well. So we can still give all our content that we want to give right that with very few variations and then chat GPT can fill in some of the other bits of the conversation. That is amazing. Like I'm honestly blown away. And I think it's so fantastic as well, because like you say, um, you know, you said in Australia, you don't have enough practitioners here in the UK. Mm. We don't either. So to have, I think there's more and more, you know, in, in the UK, we use CBT and you kind of do the, um, you do it on your own and um, as part of your treatment. And actually to have, I'm not saying that the the AI would give you CBT, but mm. to be able to have a conversation that, you know, is, it feels more structured than no conversation at all. Exactly. Um, and maybe even just like a bit of support or motivation, you know, you've got it. I'm struggling yeah. to eat. And then like they come goal setting. And we're, we're just yeah. building this chat bot now. And actually earlier today, we were talking about how do we get the chat bot to guide someone through drawing their own CBTE formulation. And I tell you, it's been really, really challenging, but we think we've got it. Um, we'll be testing it this year. So we see how we go. But um, yeah, we, we want people to obviously while they're waiting for in-person treatment or in addition to we can use these tools effectively wow okay absolutely 100 we are doing another podcast episode (laughs) because i have so many questions okay Um, i'll I'll upskill on all my conversational ai in the meantime yeah no that sounds absolutely brilliant maybe i'll get my chatbot to give you the answers and then you don't need me (laughs) Oh my God, that would be revolutionary. I think that would be like, my podcast would blow up if that's not happening. If only I had a chatbot that smart. I'd tell you, I would let you know. We're not quite there yet. maybe by the end of the year. Um, oh, no, we'll, year, we'll, get, we'll do our best it's yeah it's um it's really fun work we all enjoy it a lot uh but yeah it's, I suppose it's it's slow and careful as well well and that's I think the I think that's my kind of thing is you know it has blown up um mm. and now everybody else is trying to catch up as well and it's like yes. we all just need to you know, take this slowly because this could be yeah. something amazing um agreed can, yeah take a breath <laughs> 
Um, Indeed. So yeah, Gemma, where can people find you to keep up with your research? Because I, I am definitely not going to be the only person that wants to keep up. With oh, thank you. Well, um, I suppose I, I don't go a day without posting something on Twitter. So you can find me on Twitter at, um, at Gemma Sharp 11, but you can also just Google me, Gemma Sharp and Monash University, and you'll see my, my staff page there. And I always try and keep that very up to date. So Twitter for more like day to day, what's going on in the group and my Monash page for my papers and things like that. Awesome. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. I feel like we covered <laughs> so much in such a short space of time there um, and all such important things. So yeah, it was a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. You've been a great interviewer. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode. So be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.